Chapter 25, Part 2 of Discovery Summing the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wilma Magastino. Discovery Summing the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Lyar. Chapter 25, Part 2. The excavations were not limited to the corner of Koyonjik containing the palace. Deep trenches and tunnels were opened, and experimental shafts sunk in various parts of the mound. Enormous walls and foundations of brick masonry, fragments of sculptured and unsculptured alabaster, inscribed bricks, numerous small objects, and various other remains were discovered. To the north of the ruins in the same level, and resting upon a pavement of limestone slabs, were found four circular pedestals. They appeared to form a part of a double line of similar objects, extending from the edge of the platform to an entrance to the palace, and may have supported the wooden columns of a covered way, or have served as bases to an avenue of statues. The earth, not having been sufficiently cleared away around them, I was unable to ascertain whether there was more than a double row. They were amongst the very few architectural remains dug out at Nineveh. The ornament upon them is not inelegant and is somewhat Saracenic in its character. I will now describe some of the most interesting small objects discovered in the earth and rubbish during the excavations at Koyanjik. It must be borne in mind that the mound within which was the buried palace was used more than once and by more than one distinct people for the site of a castle, if not of a town. We know that Nineveh was utterly destroyed by the united armies of the Medes Babylonians, yet we find Meherdates taking the castle of Ninus, and the same place is mentioned by several later authors. Coins of more than one Roman emperor were, according to the superscription, struck at Nineveh. One bears the head of Trajan, and on the reverse the legend Augustus fell in any club, round an eagle with expanded wings between two military standards. Another has, on one side, the head of Emperor Maximinus, and on the reverse a naked figure, holding an object resembling a bull's head in one hand, with the legend Colonel Nineveh Club. It would appear from these coins that Claudius, who established many colonies in the East, was the founder of one called after him, Nineveh Claudiopolis. As buildings thus appear to have been erected at various times on the mound, we accordingly find in the rubbish remains of various periods. Amongst the relics occasionally brought to me by the workmen were a few fragments of pottery, and coins, and ill-cut gems with inscriptions in the Pelevé character of the time of the Sasanian kings of Persia, that is, from the first half of the third to the seventh century after Christ. Of the Roman period, we have terracotta figures and lamps, and a hoard of eighty-nine silver denarii of the emperor's Vespasian, Titus, Domitian, Trajan, Antoninus Pius, Marcus Aurelius, Lucius Verus, Commodus, and Septimius Severus, according to the dates on the coins themselves, from AD 74 to AD 201. Mr. R. Stuart Poole of the British Museum 
to whom I am indebted for a list and description of these coins, conjectures with much probability that they were buried by a Roman soldier during the second expedition undertaken by Severus against the Arabs of Mesopotamia in eighty two zero two, or during the Parthian War carried on by the same emperor. The number of coins of Commodus and the fact that there are none of any emperor after Severus led to the belief that the hoard was buried about this time. It is worthy of remark, too, that the latest have few, if any, marks of having been in circulation. Unfortunately, there are no coins amongst them actually struck at Nineveh, although they mostly belong to eastern cities. Of the time of the Seleucidae and of the Greek occupation of Assyria and Babylonia, we have several relics. Amongst them a small head of Hercules, with the eyes inlaid in ivory, one or two figures in terracotta, some copper and glass vessels, and various objects in pottery and bronze. To this period, I am now inclined to attribute the earthen sarcophagi, the great jars, and other sepulchral remains found at Nimrod, Kalashurgat, Koyanjik, and in other Assyrian mounds, which, when my former work was written, I believe to belong to a much earlier epoch. Since my return to England, Mr. Vice Consul Rassam has discovered at Koyanjik several tombs built of slabs of stone, and apparently of even a later date, for in one of them I understand was found a gold coin of the Emperor Maximinus. They contain, however, very interesting relics in the same precious metal and in glass. It is remarkable that, notwithstanding the most careful search, in all parts of the country around Mosul, I have been unable to find one undoubted Assyrian tomb, nor can I conjecture how or where the people of Nineveh buried their dead. The sepulchral chambers in the hills, so frequently described in these pages, are unquestionably of a comparatively late period. The rocky gulls outside and between the enclosure walls of Koyunjik have been examined over and over again with the greatest care for traces of tombs, but in vain. In the numerous isolated conical mounds scattered over the face of the country, I have detected nothing to show that they were places of sepulture. It must, however, be confessed that they have not yet been fully excavated. Further experiments should be made in them, and tunnels opened into their very foundations. The only Assyrian sepulchre hitherto discovered is probably the vaulted chamber in the high mound of Nimrod, which may have once contained the remains of the royal builder of the Northwest Palace. Did the Assyrians, like the fire-worshippers of Persia, expose their dead until naught remained but the bleached bones, or did they burn them and then scatter their rushes to the wings? Not a clue is given to their customs in this matter by any bas-relief or monument hereto discovered. The Assyrians appear to have avoided all allusions to their dead and to their funeral rites, unlike the Egyptians, who portrayed the ceremonies observed after death and even the events of a future state upon the walls of almost every temple and tomb. The only relics found at Koyunjik, which I can refer to the Achaemenian Persian period, 
are the remains of several dishes and vases in serpentine and marble one fragment of this nature is inscribed with egyptian hieroglyphics characteristic according to mr birch of the time of the ptolemies of assyrian relics obtained from the ruins the most interesting are a colossal beardless head in limestone remarkable for the boldness of the style it is probably part of a lion's face handles in the form of the heads of lions and other fragments of vases and dishes a fragment of striped marble carved with figures in relief and bearing an inscription with the genealogy and titles of esar hadon a gold earring adorned with pearls resembling those still in common use amongst arab women a rude circular vessel in limestone ornamented on the outside with figures in relief of the assyrian hercules struggling with the lion molds for casting earrings and other ornaments in gold and silver the forms upon them are all purely assyrian as the lion-headed deity the cone the bull's head and the sacred sign seen in the nimrod sculptures round the neck of the king the largest mold is in limestone the others in serpentine they are precisely such as are used to this day by arab goldsmiths various copper instruments one in the shape of a sickle a key a comb and other objects such as the heads of spears and arrows in iron glass bottles pottery fragments of terracotta and marble with inscriptions and many other relics all of which with those above enumerated are now in the british museum i had long been desirous of making some experiments in the mound on which stands the so-called tomb of the prophet jonah it forms part of the great group of ruins opposite mosul and is like koyanjik in the line of the enclosure walls some have believed it to represent the real site of ancient nineveh koyanjik being the remains of a palace added to the city at a later period it was important therefore to ascertain the nature and probable date of the edifice covered by the mound the sanctity of the place prevented any attempt to excavate openly and it was necessary to carry on my researches without exciting the suspicion of the mussulman inhabitants of the neighborhood a village has risen round the mosque containing the tomb the rest of the mound is occupied by a burying ground thickly set with mussulman gravestones true believers from the surrounding country bring their dead to this sacred spot and to disturb a grave on nebi yunus would case a tumult which might lead to no agreeable results the pretended tomb itself is in a dark inner room none but mussulman should be admitted within the holy precincts but i have more than once visited the shrine with the sanction of my good friend mullah sultan a guardian of the mosque a square plaster or wooden sarcophagus entirely concealed by a green cloth embroidered with sentences from the quran stands in the centre of an apartment spread with a common european carpet a few ostrich eggs and colored tassels such as are seen in similar mohammedan buildings hang from the ceiling a small grated window looks into the hall where the true believers assemble for prayer a staircase leads into the holy chamber it is needless to repeat 
The, the tradition which places the tomb on this spot is a mere fable. The village of Nebi Yunus is inhabited by Turkoman families. Some of their dwellings occupy a considerable space. Hearing that the owner of one of the largest wished to make serdubs or underground apartments for summer, I offered through my agent, Tomashishman, to dig them for him, on condition that I should have all the relics and sculptures discovered during the excavations. By these means, I was able to examine a small part of the mound. After a few days' labor, the workmen came to the walls of a chamber. They were paneled with inscribed but unsculptured alabaster slabs. The inscriptions merely contained the name, titles, and genealogy of Esar Hadon, such as were found on the bulls and sphinxes of the southwest palace at Nimrod. Several bricks and fragments of stone were also obtained from the ruins, but they all bore the same inscription. No remains, whatever, of more ancient building and no relics of an earlier period were discovered during my residence at Mosul in the mound of the prophet Jonah. Since my return to England, an inhabitant of the village, whilst digging the foundation of his house, uncovered a pair of colossal human-headed bulls and two figures of the Assyrian Hercules slaying the lion, similar to those in the Lou. He communicated his discovery at once to the English vice-consul, who informed Mr. Hodder, the artist sent out by the trustees of the British Museum. Through some neglect, these interesting specimens were not visited and secured before others became acquainted with their existence and endeavored to obtain possession of them. The Turkish authorities, of course, settled the claims of the rival antiquaries by seizing the sculptures for themselves. On several grounds, this is much to be regretted. These remains will, however, probably proved to be of the time of Isar Hadon. Three miles to the north of the enclosure of Koyanjik and on the bank of the Tigris is a village called Jerif Khan. Near it are several mounds. The largest, though, much inferior in size to the great ruins of Assyria, is distinguished, like those of Nimrod and Khorsabad, by a conical heap at one corner. For some time, excavations were carried on in this mound under my superintendence, and discoveries of interest were made in it. At a small deck beneath the surface of the soil are the remains of a building. The walls of the chambers are of sun-dried bricks, but several slabs of alabaster and painted and inscribed bricks were found in the ruins. A broad flight of alabaster steps appeared to connect an upper with the lower part of the edifice. The inscriptions upon the bricks contain the names of Sargon and Sennacherib. Those of the former king read, Sargon, king of Assyria, the city or place of the mound of the fort of Sargon I, called it a temple of the sun. Near it I built. Other bricks mention a temple dedicated to Mars or some other Assyrian deity. There are several smaller mounds in the neighborhood which have not been explored. At Nimrod, the excavations had been almost suspended. A few Arabs, still working in the center of the mound, had found the remains of sculptured walls forming part of the edifice previously discovered there. The lower half of several colossal figures 
amongst them winged men struggling with lions and mythic animals had been preserved. A few small objects of interest were discovered in different parts of the ruins, and some additional rooms were explored in the northwest and southeast palaces. In none of them, however, were there sculptures or even inscriptions, except such as were impressed on bricks. The bricks found amongst its ruins proved that it was built by the grandson of Isar Hadon, who must consequently have been one of the last of the Assyrian kings. Several tombs containing vases, beads, and ornaments were discovered above the center palace. A few large earthen jars from different parts of the mound, a number of small cups of peculiar shape from the ruins of the upper chambers, other pottery of various kinds, and some rude figures in baked clay were the principal relics found during the excavations at Nimrod. In the northwest palace was also discovered a duck with its head turned upon its back, in green stone similar to that in white marble engraved in the first series of the monuments of Nineveh. These two objects are of considerable interest, as we learn from short inscriptions upon them, deciphered by Dr. Hinz that they are ways of thirty mana, or half a Babylonian talent. They have been examined at the mint and are found to weigh forty pounds, four ounce, four dead weight ton, four grams, and thirty-nine pounds, one ounce, one dead weight ton, and six grams. The difference between them is owing to the head of one having been broken off. It may be inferred that two similar figures in bay clay, inscribed with Assyrian numerals from the same ruins, and others of small size in a gate, onyx and other hard materials are likewise ways probably parts of the talent or of the mana it is also highly probable that the curious series of bronze lions discovered at nimrod during my first researches were used for a like purpose since the coating of green rust has been removed from them they are found in several instances to bear two short inscriptions one in cuneiform characters with the name of Sennacherib the other in Phoenician or cursive semitic letters accompanied by parallel lines or notches cut in the bronze. Dr. Lapsius has recently published a bas-relief from an Egyptian tomb representing a man weighing rings of gold or silver with waist in the form of a bull's head and of a seated lion with a ring on its back, precisely similar to those from Nineveh now in the British Museum. The engraved cylinders or gems, of which a large collection was brought by me to England, form an important as well as an interesting class of Assyrian and Babylonian antiquities. They vary in size, from about two inches to a quarter of an inch, in are either circular or barrel shape, or slightly curved inwards. They are usually of lapis lazuli, rock crystal, cornelian, amethyst, chalcedony, agate, onyx, jasper, quartz, serpentine, sienite, oriental alabaster, grain felspar, and hematite. The workmanship varies in different specimens, that of some bring of considerable sharpness and delicacy, and that of others so coarse as scarcely to enable us to recognize the objects engraved upon them. The subjects are generally either religious or historical, usually the former, and on many are short inscriptions in the cuneiform character. These cylinders belong to several distinct periods. The most ancient with which I am acquainted are those of the time of the kings, who built the oldest edifices 
either to discover it at Nineveh. The subjects are usually the king in his chariot, discharging his arrows against a lion or wild bull, warriors in battle, the monarch or priest in adoration before the emblem of the deity, the eagle-headed god, winged bulls and lions, and other mythical animals accompanied by the common Assyrian symbols, the sun, the moon, the seven stars, the winged globe, the sacred tree, and the wedge reconitic element. The next in order of date are those of the time of Sargon and his successors. To this period belong the cylinder with the fish god, and that which I believe to be the signet of Sennacherib himself, described in a previous part of this work. A very fine specimen, Katinagate, represents an Assyrian goddess, perhaps Astarte, or the moon, surrounded by ten stars, with a dog seated before her. In front of her is the moon's crescent, and a priest in an attitude of adoration. A tree and a rampant goat, both common Assyrian symbols, complete the group. On editors of the same age, we find the gods represented under various forms. The king and priest were shipping before them, altars in various signs, peculiar to the period, and the usual mythic emblems. The pure Babylonian cylinders are mostly commonly found in European collections than the Assyrian. They are usually engraved with sacred figures, accompanied by a short inscription in the Babylonian cuneiform character, containing the names of the owner of the seal and of that divinity under whose particular protection he had probably placed himself. They are usually cut in a red iron ore or hematite, which appears to have been a favorite material for such objects. Many specimens, however, are in agate, jasper, and other hard substances. A glass of cylinders of very rude workmanship, and usually in hematite, are probably of the latest Babylonian period. Upon them are usually found the figures of various deities, especially of Venus, sometimes represented with the waters of life flowing from her breeze. A few cylinders and gems, Syrian in character, are inscribed with Semitic letters resembling the Phoenician and cursive Babylonian. They are rare and have chiefly been found, I believe, in ruins on the banks of the Euphrates to the north of Babylon, near Hit and Anna. I would attribute them, therefore, to the Semitic population which inhabited the districts on the eastern borders of the Assyrian desert. They appear to belong to various periods, from the time of the Lower Assyrian dynasty, of which three fine specimens are in possession of Captain Jones of Baghdad, to that of the Persian occupation of Babylonia. Persian cylinders frequently bear an inscription in the cuneiform character peculiar to the monuments of the Achaemenian dynasty. The most interesting specimen of this class is the well-known gem of green Chalcedony in the British Museum, on which is engraved King Darius in his chariot with his name and that of his father. This was probably a royal signet. Another in the same collection bears the name of one Arsaces, who appears to have been a chamberlain or to have held some other office in the Persian court. A very fine cylinder in rock crystal brought by me to this country and now also in the British Museum has the god almost represented as at Persepolis raised by two winged bulls with human heads above a novel containing the image of a king. The engraving on this gem is remarkable for its delicacy and minuteness.
Persian cylinders are recognized at once by the draperies of the figures gathered up into folds, as in the sculptures of the Achaemenian dynasty, a peculiarity never found on Persian or Babylonian monuments, by the crown of the king, by the form of the supreme deity, or Ormuz, and by the monstrous animals resembling the sculptures on the walls of Persepolis. It has been conjectured that these cylinders were amulets engraved with a kind of horoscope of the owner or with the figures of the deities who were supposed to preside over his nativity and fortunes but it is evident from the specimens above described that they were seals or signets to be impressed on clay and other materials on which public and private documents were written herodotus states that the babylonians were accustomed to have their signets constantly with them as a modern eastern always carries his seal the seal was evidently rolled on the moist clay at the same time as the letters were impressed the tablet was then placed in the furnace and baked all these cylinders have been pierced and one specimen found by my workmen in a mound in the desert near the sinjar is still retained its copper setting they revolve upon a metal axis like a garden rolling stone such then were the objects of sculpture and the small relics found at nimrod and koyanjik i will now endeavour to convey to the reader in conclusion a general idea of the results of the excavations as far as they may tend to increase our acquaintance with the history of syria and to illustrate the religion the arts and the manners of her inhabitants End of chapter 25, part 2, recording by Wilma Magastino.